We're going to turn to the Scriptures, to God's Word, and if you want to take a pew Bible, you'll find our Scripture reading on page 1,186. So page 1,186. If you're visiting today, we've been looking at this letter of Paul to the Thessalonians, and we have already had two parts of this book um, preached on, and today we come to the third part of it, and we're looking at chapter 2. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, and we're reading from verse 13. So let me just give you a moment to to look that up. Here is God's word for us this morning. And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displeased God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you, for we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again, but Satan stopped us. For what is our hope? our joy or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Instead, you are our glory and joy. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought best to be left by ourselves in Athens. We sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker, in spreading the gospel of Christ to strengthen and encourage you in your faith so that no one would be unsettled by these trials you know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent out to find about out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you, and our efforts might have been useless. And may the Lord bless his word to us this morning. Let's join together in prayers for others this morning. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for those words earlier from Psalm 149, that you take delight in your people. You crown the humble with victory. His faithful people rejoice in this honor and sing for joy. Father, on this day when we look to your word in 1 Thessalonians, where it says of suffering and trials that were destined for them. We pray this morning for those who suffer and face trials for the sake of belonging to you. Father, we pray for those who have experienced physical hurt because they claim you as their Lord and Savior. We pray for those who have been tortured, who face losing home and family, who are excluded who are denied the basic 
things of life because they own you as their savior. Father, today we thank you that you delight in your people, that you crown the humble with victory, that the faithful people can rejoice in their position and sing for joy despite the trials and sufferings that they face. Father, we pray for brothers and sisters across this world who are imprisoned for the sake of knowing Christ. Father, we pray for them in their imprisonment, in the uncertainty of their future, that, Lord, you will draw near to them, that you will bring the hope of the gospel into their life, that the presence of the Lord Jesus, who is risen, will be with them in their circumstances. And we pray for that endurance that only you can give, knowing that one day you will put all things to rights. Father, we rejoice in the trials and sufferings that are brought to your people because one day you will bring justice. One day you will crown them with the crown of life and you will welcome them into the kingdom of God saying, well done, good and faithful servant. Father, in the meantime, we pray for our brothers and sisters, both locally and across this world, that you will be with them at this time, we pray. Father, we pray today for the family of the man who died on the Albert Bridge Road on Friday afternoon. We bring that family before you and all who have been impacted by that death. We pray that you'll surround them with your love and care. And Father, we pray for each other this morning, for those in hospital, for those going in for treatment. We pray for those who are working through issues and concerns at this moment, for those who are worried. And Father, we commit them to you in this moment of silence. Lord, be with those situations and people. Give them the strength and grace that they need. And may they look back on these days and see the endurance inspired by the hope that Jesus is Lord and that he is coming again. Lord, be with these circumstances. Help us to be prayerful. Help us to wait in answer for these situations that we've prayed about because we pray them in the name of, his, of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Please uh, take a pew Bible and turn back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You'll find it on page 1,186. And it'd be helpful if you had that open in front of you so that you can follow along this morning. So page 1,186. And it's 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. And as you're looking that up, let me pray for us this morning as we come to the Lord's word together. Father, in a few moments you will remind us that this is not the word of men. It is not made up. It has been given by you. And Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. And we pray, Father, as we come to it, that we will see it as your words. That we will embrace it with hearts that are obedient and hearts that receive it with joy. And we ask for your help to do that by the help of your Holy Spirit. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Paul came to the city of Thessalonica to share the gospel with the people of the city. And when the gospel was told to the people in this city, this is what the response was. Do you remember from Acts 6.17? It says this. 
the Jews were jealous. So they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his home. They're all defying Caesar's decree, saying there's another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil, and they made Jason and the others post a bond and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. Following Paul's departure from Thessalonica, from this newly formed church, who had come to know the gospel of the Lord Jesus, they were persecuted afterward. They faced trials and sufferings because they turned from idols, do you remember that? To the living and true God. And part of the suffering and the persecution of these Christians faced in Thessalonica was that it seems that there was a campaign to discredit Paul and the gospel he preached to them. It's a bit of a smear campaign, if we put it like that. Trump is in a smear campaign, he thinks, where people are very much against him. You've never treated a president like this before, and that's a smear campaign. And you cannot approach chapter 2 of 1 Thessalonians without thinking something's going on behind it here in order for Paul to respond like this. And it's as if there is, even though we're not told very much, it's as if Paul is responding to a smear campaign to discredit him and his ministry to these Thessalonians. And surely, if you wanted to discredit him and the gospel that he brought, you could only say this, surely, their motives were wrong. They were just trying to trick you. That's why they came here, and now they're off to Berea. They were motivated by greed, trying to please you. Their message was one to control you, manipulate you. Why did they leave so abruptly? Why has he never come back? Why is this Paul like I ever never come back? Why are you suffering and being persecuted if this is good news message? You see, approaching chapter 2 with this mindset that there were those who were trying to undermine Paul and his ministry to these people in Thessalonica will make sense of this chapter. Because last week, as you entered chapters 2, verses 1 to 12, which you looked at, you should have seen that Paul was defending how the gospel came to Thessalonica. In the first 12 verses, Paul highlights their motive for coming. It wasn't out of greed. He shows them that he brought them the message, how they lived among them during their visit. And throughout the first 12 verses of chapter 2, did you notice it last week? He says this, verse 1, you know, brothers. Verse 2, as you know. Verse 5, you know, and God is our witness. Verse 9, surely you remember. Verse 10, you're a witness. Verse 11, for you know. Why is he doing this? Because he's trying to get them to understand. Recall how we were among you. Because there are those who are saying that we had come for wrong motives, the wrong idea. And so here Paul in the first 12 verses is putting a defense up against accusations against him and the gospel message. And he does it by appealing to these Christians to remember how they acted. And there are two beautiful images, and I'm sure Bill brought this out last week. Verse 7, do you see the first one? They were like a mother towards them caring for their children. Paul takes on this imagery of, we were like mothers to you, craving, looking after, little one. 
And then in number two, he says in verse 11, Paul says he's like a father deals with his own children and that perfect image, encouraging, comforting, and urging them to live lives worthy of God. These were the two images. Do you remember how we acted amongst you, Paul is saying? And Paul continues this defense to the end of chapter two into chapter three. So follow with me this morning as we continue that journey with Paul. And the first one is this, the first heading which I've entitled, which is verses, chapter two, verses 13 to 16 is this. He's thankful to God for the word of God. What do people think of the Bible today? Think about a work colleague, a friend, family member. What do they generally think about the Word of God, the Scriptures? What is their attitude to it? Their response, their thinking, their thoughts on it. Perhaps they just go, it's another, just another book written by human beings, maybe made up or compiled by the church, given too much authority to base it on anything in life or practice. Some see it as outdated, don't they? Old-fashioned, a manuscript for a time that was gone. Perhaps for others of us, it's a book that has never been engaged with, lovely, pre- lovely to be presented with or have one on the shelf, but never engaged with. And yet when Paul came to Thessalonica, we're told in Acts 17 that he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, the Old Testament, the teaching of Jesus. And Paul explained and proved from the Scriptures that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. And when these people in Thessalonica heard this, We're told, back in chapter 1, verse 6, do you see it there? They welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. And Paul is thankful to God for this. In verse 13 of chapter 2, he says to them, they received the word of God which you heard from us. You accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God which is at work in you who believe. The question you have is this, what makes people like the Thessalonians, people like you and I receive and accept the Word of God as it is the Word of God. What happens to people like you and I that we can go from a point of seeing the Bible as man-made, myth, rubbish, to seeing those words as the very words of God? Can we work this out intellectually? Yes, we would encourage you to read the scripture for yourself with your mind, by searching it for yourself. It's a great thing to do. But notice that Paul here is thankful to God for this acceptance of the word of God as the word of God. You see, in order for any of us to accept and welcome God's word as his word, there is a prior work of God done in our lives. That might seem unusual to you. But if you take it into account, our default is to be distrustful of God's word, to put arguments up against it, saying it's false, not our authority, not the very words of God. But then how can we turn around and say, it is the word of God. It can only happen because God is doing a prior work in your life. Beale puts it this way, Paul thanks God only because without God's prior inward work, the readers would not have been able to receive the word. This is an inward work of God in people's lives that bring them to the point of accepting the word of God as it actually is, the living and true and transforming words of God. The question this morning is this, where do you stand with regards to God's word? What is your view on it? Maybe you've never read it for yourself, and can I encourage you, start reading it. Read Mark's gospel. If you have never read the gospels, start in Mark. 
Ask God to help you understand it. Ask him to show you that it is true and indeed the word of God. Perhaps you're here this morning and you kind of believe it as the word of God, yet you don't really because the word of God, he needs to reveal it to you to show you the way to him. Perhaps you kind of believe it to be the word of God, but you don't allow it to be your authority or your rule for life and practice when it comes to various aspects of your life. It's just a reference point. Paul praises God. He gives thanks to God because God has done such a good work in these Thessalonian Christians that when they heard the words of God, they didn't see it as men's words or Paul's words. They embraced it as the word of God, his words. And that is a work of God in people's lives and heart. It is something to be thankful to God for continually. So when we see the small children that come up the front, we are to be thankful if they receive it as God's word. When we see adults, students, older generations welcoming and receiving the word of God, the Bible, the scriptures, as it is his words, we're to be thankful for for that help and enabling that God has done for it. That's what Paul does here. He is continually thankful, verse 13, because they receive the word of God as it actually is the word of God. The first thing then to notice in verse 13 is two things. Did you see it? That even though God is at work in people receiving the word of God, Paul still has the privilege of telling them. You heard it from us. And this is still God's pattern today that every day he uses individuals like you and I as we go to our work our studies, and he uses us and he gives us opportunities to share the word with others. It is becoming harder to do that. Make no bones about that. It is becoming more difficult to even say, God's word says. Or did you know, I'm praying for you, and here's a verse for you. God is working and he works through people sharing the message with others. And I suppose the question is, what opportunities may there be in this week ahead for you to share God's word his living word with others in your family and friends. Secondly, which sometimes we lose sight of, in verse 13, it tells us that the word of God is at work in you who believe. The word of God, as we're told in other parts of scripture, is living and active. It is sharper than a double-edged sword. It is useful for making us wise to salvation. It is useful for teaching, correcting, training in righteousness. And Paul reminds these Thessalonian Christians that God's word is at work in you who believe. It's active, it's living, it's not a static thing. And that is the work in the Christian life, shaping, molding, transforming our minds, hearts, and lives. That is why, for some of us who don't read it all week, when you come in here on a Sunday morning, it corrects your thinking. It is shaping and fashioning your heart attitude, your understanding. And you know what? Most of us are glad to be here because we have an opportunity to hear God's word. Why? Because it is at work in you who believe. Perhaps you've forgotten this. Maybe you've got sidetracked from the truth about the word of God and you've looked at other things as more dynamic, more engaging, more life-giving. But Paul brings these Christians back and he says, I'm thankful that God's work is at work in you, that you've received it as it is. But you know something, it's continually at work in your life for those who believe. And again, as we teach our children, as we bring up our teenagers in the ways of God, as adults, as we gather to read and study it in home groups, within our covenant family, God is at work showing us our sin. He is changing us. He is making us more like his son Praise God for his work through his word. 
as I said in the announcements, Martin Luther is heralded as bringing in the Reformation, but he has this lovely little saying, um, and I love it for a couple of reasons, about the Word of God, and it says this. I simply thought, preached, wrote God's Word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip or Amsdorf, I did nothing. The Word of God did everything. Isn't it lovely? This was Luther's perspective, that the word is at work, that even as he drank the German beer, even as he slept, even as he discussed with others, the word of God is shaping and at work in people's lives. God's word was at work in these Christians, but that didn't mean that life was easy for them. And this is where you'll get verses 14 to 16. Do you see it? Paul is aware that these young Christians became imitators of other churches in Judea in which they were suffering And so Paul doesn't hold back his punches on those who were persecuting them. Do you see, he says, the cause of this suffering and opposition he highlights in verses 15 and 16. He said, they kept them from sharing the gospel so that they might be saved. They were preventing God's messengers from speaking God's word to the people so that they might be rescued. That is serious stuff. And Paul in verse 15 tells them this has been their pattern for some time. This is what they did with Jesus and the prophets, they displease God and are hostile to all men. See, if you don't love God and love others, you'll prevent his word from being preached. You'll prevent the gospel from being declared. And if a nation or a leader or people and individuals are bent on preventing the gospel from spreading to others, it displeases God and it shows that they're hostile to people. They don't truly love people. How so? Because the gospel is about making God known to others. The gospel moves us to love others in a way to share the good news. And these persecutors were anti-God and they were anti-gospel. And verse 16, Paul lays down the consequences for these actions. He says, they've heaped up their sin and the wrath of God is hanging over them in verse 16. It is a warning to all of us who block the proclamation or the teaching of the gospel to others. You're heaping up your sin the wrath of God will hang over you one day. And this takes us to verses 17 to 19, where Paul here literally returns to a defense, a defense of why he left so abruptly and why he has not returned since. You see, Paul's detractors may have been accusing him of abandoning these Christians and not caring for them. But folks, have a look at verses 17 to 19. Can you truly say that when you read these verses There is a sense of warmth, a sense of love, an intense desire that communicates he loved these folk dearly. Verse 17, but brothers, we were torn away from you. In person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. We wanted to come to you, but Satan stopped us. Already Paul has mentioned that he is like a father and a mother, hasn't he? in the earlier verses. But here, the picture of being torn away is like that of an orphan child, all right? It's the picture that Paul uses here of being torn away, of being separated, taken away, cut off from him, not out of choice, but because of circumstances and opposition. It was never Paul's intention to leave them. He felt torn away from them, and he wants them to know that. He longed to return, but Satan stopped them. Now, there's no answer to what what exactly does he mean here. There could be various things put forward, but all we need to take from these verses is that Paul views 
his not being able to return as an act or an influence of Satan. But despite this prevention and frustration, look at the desire and motivation of Paul in verse 19. Do you see what it says? For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our crown. It's, I, as I was preparing this, I, I struggled a little bit trying to get Paul's depth of affection here. And I suppose, let me ask you this. Do, do you get this type of language or sentiment? Some of you might go, it's a bit extreme, isn't it? <laughs> a, bit of, a bit on the American side of overdoing it, where you tell them you love them, <laughs> or exaggerate it. But I'm not sure if we grasp this when Paul speaks like this. So let me try and give a similarity, which I think it comes in from Paul here. If you have a niece or a nephew, or a grandson or a granddaughter, or you're a parent, then perhaps think of verse 19 in these terms. Do you ever think about them and wonder, what would bring you much joy for your niece or nephew, grandchild or son? What would bring you much hope? What would bring you much glory if you saw them achieve certain things? Perhaps it would be to see them healthy to see them do well in school, to see them happy, safe, and secure. Perhaps you hope that one day they'll have a career, a husband or a wife. Perhaps you think ahead to the day when you'll be happy that they have a qualification or a job of some sort, or they're picked for a team, or they survive some illness or some troubles, or the day you give them away in marriage, or the day you have your first grandchild. That is kind of the relationship that Paul is seeing here with his spiritual children, that he finds joy in them that he has hopes for them, that the crown that they will wear in the presence of God, he will glory and he will literally say, great. And I suppose it's a bit like when, you know, if you've done a degree and you get the graduation, there's something in parents that go, you know, we achieved this somewhat, even though he spent all our money and louted around in university, he's eventually got there and we take pride in it. And that is the kind of relationship that is here. This type of desire that Paul has for his spiritual children here in Thessalonica, I don't think we're familiar with. And I'm deeply challenged by this because I think Paul is showing what Christian ministry is like, where a minister or an elder should have these deep, deep desires that say to you as a congregation, my hope, my joy, my crown is to see you complete this Christian race. We want it for our kids, but then we make it all insular. It's about our family. But what about each other? And that is Paul's deep down desire. He wants these folk to have joy and hope. He wants them to glory in them. He doesn't want to see them unsettled in their faith. He wants them to finish the race. And for Paul, his joy, his crown, his glory will be in the day when he stands before God and those Thessalonian Christians are there with him. And he goes, that's what I want. That's what I want for you. That's what I will glory in. That will be my joy, my crown, my hope if you're there. And folks... You know, in the little year that I've had here with you, I hope that for you too. I hope that you'll be able to persevere under suffering, which we'll look at in a minute. I hope that you will continue to follow Christ. His life, Paul's life, is inextricably linked with their spiritual welfare and well-being. And folks, this is the type of ministry you should expect from elders and from your ministers. This is the gospel at work in Paul. And you know what? You might think it's just Paul, but that's the way the Lord was as well with us. He loved his people. He died for them. He longs to see them go on with him. And this is what Paul has here. 
It's a type of deep, challenging commitment and love to people that only God can give, praying this for others, desiring it, and acting upon it. And finally, we come to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, where Paul again is seeking both to defend himself and the gospel he brought to them, but he's also seeking to encourage them. And he says in verse 1 of chapter 3, when he could stand it no longer. Some of you yesterday, as parents or grandparents, couldn't stand it any longer until the post came in to see if your kid got a P7 letter, right? You're waiting. You're anxious over the months. Will it be from that school or that school? And when he could stand it no longer, and that's the sentiment that Paul has here, he's waiting, longing, and when he could stand it no longer, he couldn't go himself, so he sends young Timothy. And do you cop how he commends Timothy? He mentions Timothy as our brother and God's fellow worker. And Timothy is sent to Thessalonica for a reason. And it says, to strengthen and encourage. I don't know if you heard or, or read the news this week. I didn't know this, but about Northern Ireland's longest listed monument, which is the Mourne Mountain. Hand, hands up if you, if you know this, this Mourne Mountain wall. Right? It's 20 miles long. You can't miss it. Like, um, And it goes through 15 peaks in County Down. It was constructed in 1904, but because of weather and other factors, it needs repairs, and so that's going to happen, and so it ended up in the news. Stonemasons will strengthen this wall. They'll reinforce it, and that is the idea here of Timothy coming to these Thessalonian Christians. He's coming to strengthen, buttress, as it were, reinforce, to build them up, to help encourage them because they face trials and sufferings that they're being bombarded with, and Paul knew what these Christians were going through. And as verse 3 says, he feared that they would be unsettled by the trials, and he was afraid, verse 5, that Satan, the tempter, might have tempted them away from the Christian faith. Again, his, his love for them, his longing for them. And Paul comes and he says, I'm sending Timothy. I can't bear it anymore. I'm sending him to strengthen you, to encourage you in the faith. And Paul, though, in these verses, verses 1 to 5, and with this I finish, he reminds them of one important truth which he told them in the past, and he reminds them again. He says, there will be trials and sufferings, and you're destined for them. D.A. Carson in his commentary says this, it is very interesting to learn that the regular topic of Paul's instruction to converts, young believers, was the inevitability of suffering. If you're a Christian here this morning, if you're at that moment of considering Christ or looking into the Christian faith, let me put it out on the table to you. You will suffer. There will be trials. And Paul reminded these believers of this. For these Thessalonian Christians, it was coming in the form of opposition because they had turned from idols to the living and true God. Folks, there is a cost for making Christ your Lord and Savior. You may face losing face. You may even lose family and friends, property, be insulted, dismissed as a fool, called all sorts of things. You may be facing court or exclusion. We're destined for trials and suffering. Jesus Christ faced trials and suffering, and he was the most loving man that ever lived. He did things so well, yet he was familiar with suffering, despised and rejected. How will not then his followers face the same thing? Young people, Today you are told you're destined for greatness. You can do atom with your life. If you are a Christian here today, you're destined for one sure thing, according to Paul, and that is trials and suffering. Your life won't be comfortable. It will not be easy. You're destined for them.
And yet Paul reminded these things, these Christians, endurance inspired by hope. Christ is returning, and then there'll be glory. What are you facing today, dear brothers and sisters at Bloomfield? What trials, what suffering? Have they taken you by surprise? We're destined for them. We're destined for trials and suffering. On Friday night, I'm, I'm still devastated by this. <laughs> Leinster Rugby were faced the scarlets, right? Um, they were unsettled, out of sorts, and even shell-shocked by the way the Scarlet's rugby team roll-raided them and, and beat them. And on Friday night, that happened. And so often, folks, when it comes to trials and sufferings in our lives, we can be surprised, but don't be. And that's hard for me to say, because I know from pastorally visiting some of you, that is hard to take. You may be unsettled, but not at sea. Because this letter and your discipleship as believers in the Lord Jesus tells us constantly you're destined for trials and suffering. They will come. That doesn't mean they will not hurt or we're not emotionally involved with that. Paul is preparing these Christians and he said, you're destined for it. There will be trials and sufferings. But you know what? There's glory to come. Christ is returning. And those sure and short moments of suffering and trial will be nothing compared to all eternity when God will make all things right. Let me close with the words of a beautiful hymn. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lead, my grace all-sufficient shall be thy supply. The flames shall not hurt thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God and will still give thee aid. I'll strengthen thee, help thee, and cause thee to stand, upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we thank you this morning that you have enabled us to receive your word as it is, the word of God. It is not some dull, old-fashioned, out-of-date book. But Lord, these are your living words to us, and we thank you for that. Lord, help us to receive it and welcome it. And Father, we thank you for the change that you brought in these Christians. We thank you that you can still do the same today. And Father, we long to be a people, a community here in our local church that would love like Paul loved these folk, be committed to from the youngest to the oldest, that they would be our joy, our crown, the thing we glory in as they stand before the presence of Jesus. In the meantime, Father, you're teaching us we're destined for trials and suffering. And for those who are in that shadow, we pray for them today, Lord. Be their aid, be their help. Uphold them by your righteous and omnipotent hand so that they will look back and say, the Lord has been good. He has brought us true. Lord, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Bless us for the rest of this day, and as we return tonight, we pray that you'll be with us in Jesus' name. Amen.